Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, Lime Ninjas. This is Lime Ninja Radio, where we help you navigate confidently through your own personal Lime journey. Everybody's journey is different, and a cookie-cutter approach just won't work for Lyme disease. You need ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 114 with Lime expert, Bob Miller. Also with us in the studio is our certified show producer in the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will re- you will learn the results of Bob Miller's study on the genetics of people with Lyme disease, how Lyme disease interferes with the body's ability to produce energy, and how glutamate disruption affects energy production and your emotional state. This is amazing work that Bob's doing, taking the 23andMe data and really digging down into it and trying to look for patterns with Lyme disease. And he's starting to find a few. And it's a great interview. It's a great follow-up to the last interview we had, which was what, number 98? Number 98, yep. So not that long ago. It's just this work is so exciting. And I just can't uh, give enough kudos to Bob and his staff and what they've done to help people in general and particularly with the Lyme community. All right. I'd also like to give a shout out for those of you participating in the Lyme Ninja Radio Keto Challenge. Keep on keeping on with the emails. Let us know how you're doing with that and any updates you have. I really appreciate hearing from all of you. And if you want to know more about the Keto Challenge or what can they do? They can go on to LimeNinjaRadio.com. There will be a pop-up. There is a pop-up. <laughs> you can't miss it unless you were there earlier the day and the software doesn't give it to you twice. We don't want to annoy you too much, just a little bit. Just a little. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Aurora, why don't you tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Bob Miller. Right. In 2015, Bob Miller was inspired to start examining chronic Lyme disease, and he founded Nutrigenetic Research Institute to research and publish reports on the relationship between genetic variants, labs, and presenting system. Bob has served as a traditional naturopath for 20 years and earned his naturopathic degree from Trinity School of Natural Health. Recognizing that there was not a nutritional supplement line on the market comprehensive enough to address all the possible genetic variants, he began working with the national company Professional Health Products to formulate an epigenetic line of products. Thanks, Aurora. And here's our interview with Bob Miller. Well, McKay, once again, a pleasure to be uh, to be with you. And uh, what an honor and privilege it is to be able to, to help these folks who have Lyme disease. Uh, I'm just astounded as I speak to them uh, how anxious they are to get well, how grateful they are for people that are, uh, you know, trying to support them. And uh, I am just having a blast uh, working with those that have uh, Lyme disease. A little of the history. Um, I'm just a traditional naturopath. You know, we're the folks who don't uh, diagnose, treat, prescribe. We just work on supporting people nutritionally and teach and educate them how to build health. Uh, Many years ago, I became quite fascinated as to how our genetic profile might be a 
role in uh, how we need uh, nutritional support. Never realizing I'd uh, be just delving into it uh, 100% uh, as I am. A couple years ago, uh, someone with uh, with chronic Lyme came to me, and uh, they were fascinated by what uh, they saw, and they invited me to speak at a Lyme support group. Well, then those people came to talk to me, and many of them were pleased with the results. And then they started sharing that information on other forums and Facebook groups. And all of a sudden, people from all over the country and all over the world were coming to talk to me. Now, it's important to note that I don't treat Lyme disease. I'm not a licensed medical doctor, so there's nothing I do that treats Lyme disease. But what we try to do is the traditional naturopathic philosophy, and that is that you need to support the what's called the terrain or the environment of the body so that the immune system can be strong and you don't create conditions for any organisms. That's the, you know, core fundamentals of traditional naturopathy. You know, we had the germ theory, which is it's the germ that causes the problem. And that was espoused by Louis Pasteur. Then there was Antoine Bichamp who said, no, I think it's the terrain as well. And as legend has it, uh, the, the two, although they were at odds, uh, the legend is that uh, Louis Pasteur on his deathbed said, I think that uh, Antoine Bichamp is on to something and he might be correct. And now that's been almost the genesis of what would be called functional medicine, uh, which is now medical doctors that are you know, looking at the underlying conditions and trying to correct that. So I just want to be clear that I, at no point do I, I treat the Lyme, but I support the conditions that, you know, trying to drain the swamp, so to speak, that would allow pathogens a friendly environment and also suppress the immune system. So as I started talking to people across the country and across the world, I started noticing genetic patterns that started looking similar. And I thought, well, this is curious. So when I turned 60 years old, I decided I'd like to speed it up for the next 23 years. So, (laughs) (laughs) And I wasn't kidding. So I thought, well, why don't I start a research institute? So I started the Nutrigenetic Research Institute, and our first project was to look at those with chronic Lyme and compare them to a control group. And uh, because of social media and, and help by some of the people that are very excited about this research, in a short period of time, we had a large amount of people who had uh, chronic Lyme who submitted, you know, for free to us the uh, their, their 23andMe. And our, and our first project uh, was to look at what's called the methylation pathways. And uh, I think if someone wants detail, uh, they can go back and listen to, uh, to other podcasts. But that's basically where the, the body takes uh, methionine and turns it into SAMI to do what's called methylation. And it's where we make B12 and folate and, you know, where we, uh, where we make something called nitric oxide. And there's processes in there that if they don't work right, you can have uh, toxic conditions in the body or you can have the uh, inability to make uh, important critical things that are that are needed. And in phase one, we found some interesting things that I'll, uh, that I'll review briefly. And uh, the response to that was quite phenomenal. So what I did, I saw that uh, ILADS, the International Lyme Disease Association, uh, was having an international conference in Helsinki, Finland in June of 2016. And they were looking for posters or, or research. So I thought, well, this should be fun. So we made up a poster. We uh, went off to Helsinki, which is an absolutely fascinating place to visit. And lo and behold, my first research project was a winner. Uh, they only picked uh, two out of all the things that were submitted. 
and mine was chosen as the uh, the winning research project. And many people there were, were quite fascinated uh, by it. Uh, as a result of that, I just spoke a couple weeks ago at the ILADS uh, American Conference and gave out a breakout session where I uh, where I showed that uh, information. And uh, again, very well received. I had a full uh, full room full of people who found it uh, absolutely fascinating. Highlights of that uh, were that I, I found that there were some mitochondrial issues for those with chronic Lyme. Uh, fats, carbohydrates, and proteins need to come into the cell to make something called acetyl-CoA and then go on to make uh, the process where the respiratory chain makes what's called ATP. And I found, interestingly, that there was higher amounts, significantly higher amounts of genetic issues in those with chronic Lyme in the mitochondria, and that made lower ATP. Now, one of the other things that we find with those with chronic Lyme is many times these are very intelligent, hardworking, successful people. They're the get-or-done kind of folks, as I call them. Well, what we find that one of the factors that causes that is something called glutamate. And glutamate makes your brain go very quickly. And it makes you analyze data. And it makes you a get-or-done kind of person. These are the folks that their employers love them because they can be depended upon. They're conscientious. Uh, they think things through. You know, They're like the ideal employee. Or many of them are self-employed, uh, running their own businesses because they've had high glutamate. Now, one of the things I find interesting is that there's virtually a bell curve to everything inside the body. We can have too little of it, we can have the right amount, or we can have too much. That's why one of my favorite jokes is that everything we really need to learn is Goldilocks to three bears. You know, not too hot, not too cold. <laughs> just right. And just right, sure. And that same thing applies to glutamate. If you don't have enough glutamate, uh, your brain is not going to work very, very well. If it goes pretty fast, that's where you get the people that are, are gifted. A little faster, you're a genius. And a little faster than that, you're in that ADD category many times. And then a little faster than that, you're in the schizophrenia where you're, you know, seeing animals and people that aren't there. Well, what happened is these people with uh, chronic Lyme had just the perfect amount of glutamate to make them intelligent, high achieving. Now, unfortunately, what happens when you get any pathogen in the cell, the, uh, the ATP slows down. So I'm theorizing that what happened then is that there was a lessening of the glutamate to GABA conversion. What we're talking about there, okay, is that glutamate is excitatory and it actually, there's a process, there's a gene called the GAD gene that turns it into GABA. ATP is needed to make it happen and there's something called sulfites that inhibit it. Well, when you get the, uh, the Lyme disease, the ATP goes down and sometimes the sulfites go up. So that glutamate to GABA conversion is impaired. So the glutamate goes higher. And that's why many people with Lyme, I'm theorizing, are, uh, are anxious. But also research has shown, there's a paper that shows that glutamate in excess will make more superoxide and nitric oxide to make one nasty son of a gun called peroxynitrite. And that suppresses the immune system. That depletes a very important antioxidant called glutathione. And consequently, you become toxic. Heavy metals build up. Your immune system is suppressed and you become inflamed. When I teach to uh, health practitioners, I call peroxynitrite the gorilla in the room because it is so inflammatory. 
Then the other thing we found that I think was the most significant, and that is the body's relationship to iron. We all know that iron is very important to build your blood. There's parts of the world where, where people are dying because they're iron deficient and they desperately need iron. However, in America, we have all of our fortified foods and uh, we seem to have plenty of iron. And there's a genetic condition called hemochromatosis where people have a genetic issue where they overabsorb the iron. And to have hemochromatosis, typically you have to inherit the gene from mother and father. And these are the people that the medical folks easily identify them because when they do an, a test, their, their iron, their ferritin, other iron markers are sky high. And they have to donate blood on a regular basis or that iron will do oxidative damage inside the body. However, there's surprisingly a high amount of people that are what are called heterozygous. They just have one copy of the hemochromatosis gene. And studies have shown that this causes the iron to be absorbed just a little bit higher. But what I found, and, and this is the word that I'm trying to get out, in a large percentage of people who have chronic Lyme, and besides that, just people that are really sick and can't seem to get well, they have a process where they genetically make more of a molecule called cysteine. Now, people may be familiar with that because sometimes people take NAC and acetylcysteine in the hopes of being anti-inflammatory. And the reason they do that is because the body turns N-acetylcysteine along with glycine and glutamine into glutathione, the master antioxidant. However, if we have genetic issues that we don't turn that cysteine into glutathione, the cysteine can go high. And then what we found is there's something called the Fenton reaction, named after the scientist who discovered it, where cysteine combines with iron, changes that iron, that combines with another molecule called hydrogen peroxide, and then it creates hydroxyl radicals, nasty son of a guns, that do damage to the body. What's ironic here is although you can be over-absorbing the iron, in my research, we found that many of these people, their iron levels come back normal, or even more fascinating, they come back anemic. So they're over-absorbing the iron, but they're burning it up into inflammation, and they appear anemic. So no one catches the fact that there's too much iron in the body. So the, the blood tests are accurate. They really are anemic from an iron standpoint, but they're over-absorbing the iron, and they're turning it into hydroxyl radicals. And these are the folks that if they take iron, they many times feel worse despite the fact they're anemic. And interestingly, these are the people that many times, if they take glutathione, which everybody thinks should be the perfect solution, they feel worse because it's sparing the cysteine. Yeah. So there's more cysteine to combine with the iron. Let me and, interrupt you just for a minute there because I have a sure. story exactly about that Uh Within the past couple of weeks, I had a patient come in. She was clearly uh, glutathione deficient, and uh, we decided to add a little glutathione into her system for a short time to bump her up. She called me two days later and said, uh, I can't sleep. Hmm. And given you know, I just attended your workshop and you talked about the pathway and the glutathione, adding that 
would spare the cysteine and react with some iron. And that was part of her profile, too. I said, okay, stop the glutathione. And right. within a day, she was back to her normal sleeping patterns. But that's that's such an important part because, I mean, we all hear so much about glutathione and things that we talk, you talked earlier about GABA. You can't just throw these nutrients, these chemicals into the body without having an understanding of what's going on upstream because you can really send things over the edge. And my question for you is, I mean, she responded very, very quickly. Obviously, she has a lot of uh, issues in that iron oxidation pathway. But can how long does it take for that to show up? Can it be longer than a couple of days? Can it be a couple of weeks? And- oh, absolutely. And what tipped me off to this is uh, if I would suggest to someone to use glutathione, uh, I usually then check back with them every, uh, you know, eight to ten weeks. And, you know, on the first check back, eight weeks later, how are you doing? Oh, man, phenomenal. You know, less pain, really feeling good. Uh, we're on to something here. Fantastic. Let's keep doing it. And then we check back another eight, ten weeks later. How are you doing? Uh, I'm going back to where I was. Something's wrong. So uh, that's when, you know, we little did a little deduction and we found that the glutathione was depleted. They were doing well as well as long as we started uh, restoring it. But then when we got to the point where the glutathione was okay and we started sparing cysteine, in other words, when you give something to the body, the body will say, thank you very much, I don't need to do that. And then we started sparing the cysteine and it started creating inflammation. So it, sometimes it took... Uh, you know, sometimes uh, 10 to, to 20 weeks for it to show up. Uh, now, we had uh, an instance on a, on a webinar where there was a young lady who uh, who had glutathione intravenous, and the next day she ended up in a wheelchair. So I think it depends, you know, how high the cysteine is, how low the glutathione is. And uh, so what I'm now suggesting for these folks, and this is what I teach the, the, uh, the medical doctors and other uh, licensed practitioners who treat the Lyme, that what we need to do is be very careful and maybe support the cysteine to glutathione conversion. In other words, help that enzyme turn that cysteine into glutathione. Then you get the best of both worlds. You get the lowered cysteine while you're getting the higher glutathione. When you do that, although you're working on the glutathione, the way it works is completely different. And we oftentimes have to support uh, that downstream transsulfuration where it's making too much cysteine as well. So it's, uh, as I've often said, it's a 3D chess game played underwater. Yes, it is. There's nothing simple about that. And yeah. one of the things you mentioned earlier that I'd like to talk about, you talked about the ATP production and the Krebs cycle. Can we get into some of the details that you discovered in the Phase two Lyme study about which particular uh, genes and the associated enzymes show up again and again? Oh, sure. Yeah, one of the things we found uh, was that uh, in, in phase one, we were looking at uh, the genes that are related to uh, carnitine. We looked at the ones that uh, are called the SLC genes, and they help make carnitine. And carnitine is needed to take fats from outside the cell to inside the cell. And if you don't have enough of that, then the fats stay outside the cell and become oxidized. We also found that there's a called the ACAT genes, acetyl-CoA transferase. And they are responsible for taking your fats and proteins and turning them into the first step of the Krebs cycle called uh, acetyl-CoA. And then 
after we make something called NADH and FADH, there's the respiratory chain that makes ATP. And there's NDUF genes, and there's lots of them. And for right now, we're only studying NDUF S7. As we progress, we clearly want to study more of them. But we found that those carnitine genes, the ACAD genes, and the NDUF genes, there was more statistically variance in those with chronic Lyme than the control group. So at the very top, middle, and bottom of mitochondrial function, we found uh, some issues. Now, clearly, we want to continue to look there. Uh, one of the things that you just pointed out uh, to us and asked us to put into the software was some genes that are related to pyruvate, which is part of what's called glycolysis. So I'm sure in a future study, and again, hats off to you, McKay, for helping show us those, uh, we may look at is there a glycolysis issue or the using of carbohydrates in those with uh, with chronic Lyme. So we're finding that there is a mitochondrial piece. Then if you add to that higher glutamate, which is inflammatory, and iron oxidation, you are creating the proverbial perfect storm. Right, and just as a little reminder to folks out there what ATP is. ATP is essentially a chemical battery that charges the cell. So you've got the mitochondria, which are little kind of independent cells within the cell, and they produce this compound called ATP that it's one of the, in terms of evolutionary, the evolution, the mitochondria allowed the cells to use oxygen and to live outside of the water. So Mitochondria uses oxygen, creates this chemical battery, and then depending on the number of these batteries and the strength of these batteries, the cell can either do its job well or not so well. So if you've ever had the, like an electric drill and you've gone to drill a hole with it and the battery's not charged up and it, you know, you press the trigger and it spins fine on itself and you put the drill bit into the wood and it just comes to a close. That, an exhausted ATP within the cell is going to have that kind of lack of energy behind it. it the, the ATP literally charges the cell and allows it, if it's a muscle cell, to contract or if it, it's an excretory cell that puts out some uh, hormone or some other chemical, it's just not going to be able to get that out into the body. So depending on where the mitochondria is exhausted, and that's an interesting thing too, then that organ, that function is going to be diminished. So it could be in your muscles, it could be your heart, it could be your neurons in your brain, maybe it's in your liver, maybe it's all over the place. So that's that's why ATP is so incredibly important. And I must say, McKay, that is probably one of the most concise, easy to understand descriptions of ATP I've ever heard. Good, good job. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, coming from you, that means a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That was really good. Now, really good. Let, let's talk a more about glutamate to GABA2 because th th this is the same issue we talked about glutathione backing up and sparing cysteine. So if you give GABA, and GABA is this wonderful relaxing hormone that just makes us feel good and relax, but if we take it, again, that can back up and spare glutamate, which then creates peroxynitrate, so forth and so on. So can you talk about that and how that shows up in the Lyme disease study sure. as well? Well, exactly. So many people have, uh, as we discussed, have these genetic patterns to make high glutamate. Then uh, they might even have some issues turning the glutamate into GABA to begin with. And then when they uh, 
when they get a Lyme pathogen that uh, just makes the situation worse. So a lot of well-meaning people know that uh, GABA is very relaxing. So uh, I've heard this happen many times because I've asked the folks, have you ever done this? Now, if you are low in glutamate and low in GABA and you are anxious, you're going to absolutely love GABA. It will be like the, oh, I finally feel relaxed. However, if your glutamate is high and your your GABA, and interestingly, you can even be stressed when your GABA is high, and, but it doesn't matter either way. If the glutamate is high and you start taking GABA, you will start sparing glutamate. So again, this is one of those interesting ironies that taking GABA can actually make you more anxious because you're sparing it. And while we're on the subject of glutamate, let me also talk about L-glutamine. Um, a lot of people in the holistic world know that L-glutamine is very healing to the gut, and it is. But one of the things we're studying is the glutamine to glutamate pathways. And if your glutamate is high and you start pouring in more glutamine, you can actually make the glutamate higher. And that's why I've noticed when I see these patterns, I'll ask people, did you ever take L-glutamine for the gut? And they'll say, oh, my God, I took that stuff and, you know, I thought I was going to uh, get it peel me off the ceiling. <laughs> and their practitioner couldn't understand because they thought, well, everybody knows L-glutamine is healing for the gut. And again, clearly it is, which is taking us back to personalized care in the functional medicine world where the medical doctors do their thing. You know, there is talk all the time of how we have to have personalized medicine. And then even in the natural health world where we give nutrients, I'm convinced we have to have personalized nutrition because even though it's a nutrient that occurs in nature and is considered non-toxic, under certain conditions where you have genetic patterns that may make it in excess, taking more can actually backfire on you. That's so well said. In Chinese medicine, that has been part of the theory for a long, long time in prescribing herbs that you not only had to look, like you talked about earlier about the terrain, you have to look at the terrain in which you're introducing the supplement or the herb. It's not just about the nature of the herb itself. And because exactly. it's not, it's not landing on a cookie cutter sterile field, it's landing in a human being and we are ridiculously complex. We sure are. Absolutely. And let's also, another fascinating thing, I had a patient come in fairly recently and she, young woman uh, from Martha's Vineyard, which is absolutely covered with ticks and Lyme disease, and she's been tested and come back negative, but man, she has lots of symptoms that just make you wonder if she got the right test or not. And her genes for creating nitrous oxide were mm. not wonderful. Yes. And, but her symptoms, she didn't have any circulatory systems. She's still a young person. Her symptoms were mostly uh, emotional. And so I got looking into some of the research on nitrous oxide and depression. And it turns out there's a massive correlation there between that. So it, it's interesting about nitrous oxide. And once you talk about nitrous oxide uncoupling, and I just want to put in the back of people's minds a little earworm that just because the nitrous oxide, you know, we know about it, especially because of all the drugs out there and with erectile dysfunction and with heart disease and things like that. But nitrous oxide is a sing signaling molecule, a signaling gas. It does a lot more than just open up the blood vessels. But 
Tell us more. Again, we see this with the Lyme 2 study that there's a lot of nitrous oxide uncoupling going on. And why is that such a problem, Bob? Sure, absolutely. Well, and there's an interesting process where an amino acid called L-arginine combines with something called tetrahydrobiroptin, sometimes called BH4. And the NOS enzymes combine those two to make nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is what dilates the blood vessels. And that's why, you know, people probably know more about this than they think. If you ever know anyone with, uh, you know, with heart disease, they'll, they'll carry nitroglycerin that they'll put under their tongue. That causes the nitric oxide to, uh, to be expressed. And also, you can't watch TV without hearing about uh, Viagra and Cialis. They spare the breakdown of nitric oxide. So it's involved in dilating the blood vessels and there's a, there's a NOS 1, 2, and 3, and it's very complex, and I'm sure someday we're going to be studying each of these individually. But as you said, it's a, it's a signaling molecule. But it also, in that NOS uh, enzyme, if the NOS enzyme is genetically defective, or there's other things that we don't make enough BH4, rather than making nitric oxide, we make the free radical superoxide. And superoxide is one nasty free radical it has to be neutralized by superoxide dismutase, an antioxidant. And if that doesn't happen, the uh, superoxide combines with what little bit of nitric oxide you have left over and makes, again, the gorilla in the room, peroxynitrite. Now, peroxynitrite, this becomes like one vicious circle, peroxynitrite suppresses BH4. Now, BH4 is also needed to take your tryptophan and tyrosine and turn that into serotonin and dopamine. So, hence, you're going to be depressed if you don't have enough tetrahydrobiroptin. And the peroxynitrite, in addition to suppressing the immune system and making you inflamed and depleting your glutathione, that's why I call it the angry gorilla in the room, it also depletes your BH4, your tetrahydrobiroptin. So, when we see these folks who have high glutamate, and then they also have the peroxynitrite that depletes their BH4. That's where we get that wired, tired, anxious, and depressed. And you see that pattern quite often. Uh, they're wired because the glutamate makes them, uh, you know, agitated, but they're exhausted. And they're anxious, but at the same time depressed. And they're really feeling quite, uh, quite miserable. That's not a, a fun way to go around in life. Thanks for that explanation. That's really, really hits the nail on the head. I've interviewed quite a few people with Lyme disease and almost all of them. So by the time I'm interviewing, they're feeling good enough to talk about their, their journey. And almost all of them went through at least one period, if not several. And these periods can last anywhere from uh, several months to a year or more where they're expressing emotions exactly what you're talking about they're just completely overwhelmed they're completely exhausted and they're also frantic about trying to find so they're up late at night at 2 3 a.m on the internet trying to figure out what's going on and then sleeping you know 20 hours a day or 18 hours a day it's a it is a vicious cycle absolutely now bob Tell us where where does this study go from here? What are the next steps that you're kind of percolating in that mind of yours? Sure. Well, the next thing we did is we went on to phase two, and I presented that as a poster at uh, ILADS uh, just a couple weeks ago. And what we did this time is we looked we we got more people to participate 
and then we increased the gene count to 1,298. And uh, some serious number crunching there. And then we decided, well, let's, you know, we're going to exclude the ones we found in phase one study because we've already looked at those. So what else might be more genetically variated in those with chronic Lyme? I just about fell off my chair when over half of the top 60 were related to neurotransmitters. This was a brand new world for me. I had no idea that neurotransmitters played multiple roles that they do. So we're in a learning process. So what we found in phase three, out of the top 65, I've just in my poster just identified about half of them because so many of them were related to uh, to uh, neurotransmitters. Now, probably in phase three, we'll probably delve into some of the others because, quite frankly, some of these others, we don't even quite know how they're involved yet. But what we found, again, the, the, the glutamate, but we found that there was uh, several genes we didn't look at before. We already spoke about the GAD1, but there's a gene called GLS glutaminase that takes glutamine to glutamate and ammonia. And then we also found the GOT1, glutamic oxyacetate transpinase, that takes glutamate to alpha-ketoglutarate. Now, alpha-ketoglutarate is part of the Krebs cycle where we make energy. So glutamate goes in multiple directions, but one of them is into the mitochondria for energy production. So if you've got genetic variants in your GOT1, that's going to keep the glutamate higher, and then once again be a factor in lowering the ATP. And uh, and in the GRIA1 uh, and GRIA2, uh, they're the glutamate lonotrophic receptor, and uh, we're just starting to learn what they do, but they're the predominant excitatory neurotransmitter receptors in human brains. So again, we find these, these glutamates uh, being very high. Now, what I'd like to do is, is further research. Uh, when I was at the uh, Lyme conference, uh, I ran into the uh, the head of the science department of uh, science committee at ILADS, who is a professor uh, in uh, in Finland, and uh, the Department of Biological and Environmental Sciences, and uh, she's associate professor of cell and molecular biology, and they uh, were considering me coming over there to work with their PhD students to maybe see which of these are upregulated, upregulated, downregulated, and perhaps get it uh, published. That's one of my own personal goals, I think it would be just way cool to have a paper on uh, on PubMed that uh, was a result of the of the study. But then, interestingly, uh, the other one that we didn't look at was dopamine, and I found this one to be the most fascinating. You know, we know of dopamine as, you know, something that gives us motivation, helps us feel good. You know, many times people will, you know, involve themselves in activity because they theoretically get that uh, that dopamine hit. But this was all brand new to me as we, we dug into it. And what happens is that uh, there's the uh, uh, an enzyme that uh, turns your dopa into dopamine. And uh, that is the dopa decarbolase that catalyzes dopa to dopamine and also 5-HTP to serotonin and tryptophan to tryptamine uh, and is also involved in the immune system which was like, whoa, that's pretty fascinating. So we found a higher amount of genetic variants in those DDC genes, which makes your dopamine. Then there is another enzyme called uh, the DBH, uh, which is the dopamine beta-hydroxylase, 
that converts dopamine to norepinephrine. And what we found is norepinephrine is involved in immune function. It's like, oh, isn't that fascinating? Okay. Now, just as a side note, uh, glutathione activates cofactor regeneration from the dopamine to norepinephrine. So if you've got some heavy metal stuff going on and your glutathione is depleted or you've got the iron oxidation or the glutamate making all this free radicals, that's further reducing your glutathione, thus further impeding the dopamine to norepinephrine conversion. Now, your dopamine also has what are called dopamine receptor sites, which again was all brand new for me, the DRD2 and 3, and uh, they are involved in some absolutely fascinating things. So dopamine receptor 2 and dopamine receptor D3, they are involved in activating T cells to inhibit something called IL-2 and IL-4, which is inflammatory, and they activate T cells. So this is a brand new area that I'm certainly looking to collaborate with uh, with people of any universities or anybody's hearing this and they'd like to uh, collaborate with this. I mean, I'm a one-man band, so to speak, a naturopath in uh, you know, rural Lancaster County, and uh, we certainly need more resources thrown at this. But I found this fascinating as the phase two that all these genetic variants in the production of dopamine, the conversion of dopamine to norepinephrine, and the dopamine receptor sites were having trouble, therefore affecting inflammation and immunity. Absolutely uh, fascinating. Then the other thing that blew me away was that the glutaminase genes, which again is involved with uh, making glutamate, but the cannabinoid receptor sites. And again, I really didn't know much about this, so we're just starting to research that. My research department is working on this. And I think we know just a little bit about this. But uh, the cannabinoid receptor 1 modulates neurotransmitter release when activated. And there seems to be that inhibits the release of glutamate. So again, when we have these uh, problems with our cannabinoid receptors, that may again allow glutamate to go high. So every which way we look, we're just seeing glutamate coming up as a factor in uh, those suffering with weakened immune system and inflammatory conditions. So uh, a lot more work to do here, but to, but to sum it up, we found more glutamate genes, dopamine genes, and cannabinoid receptors, which are all part of creating this, you know, excitatory uh, state. And we many times see that those with chronic Lyme are, are very anxious, or they call it the Lyme brain. I mean, you probably have... Uh, you probably have more insight on that than I do. What uh, what are you observing as far as the emotional status and the and the brain fog that goes with this? It's almost a universal symptom, uh, some sort of brain fog, and whether it's too much glutamate. And like you said, these most Lyme patients are incredibly intelligent and incredibly motivated, so the glutamate does get high and and drive them from that point of view. Now, they may be predisposed to begin with uh, that type of personality, but I think it's accelerated with the Lyme disease. And you start to see the just the breakdown in the functioning of the executive functions, so the transfer of short-term memory to long-term memory, and I think that's a dopamine uh, express thing as well. Or No, you know what? I'm sorry. It's nitrous oxide. 
So nitrous oxide plays a role in moving uh, short-term memories to long-term memories, and that's being depleted also by the cyglutamate and the high peroxynitrate that you're talking about. And then there's just the emotional regulatory part. So we've all heard of people with Lyme rage. So there's a function in the brain, and forgive me, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it smooths out our emotions. So it keeps us from getting too high as well as too low. And as that function begins to diminish, you start seeing really out-of-proportion responses from people with Lyme disease. So the the Lyme brain can go everywhere from just this uh, very weak, very exhausted thinking brain to one that's highly excitable and too much light, too much noise, too much emotional response will send it uh, all over the place. And and that's those are the patterns. So it kind of goes back to what you're talking before, the tired, wired, depressed, but anxious combination. Sure. Now, many times people say, well, what do we do about this uh, dopamine and cannabinoids? And unfortunately, at the date of this recording, we don't know yet. Uh, on phase one, you know, we have a lot of things we can do. There's lots of things we can do to, you know, slow down that cysteine, support that cysteine to glutathione conversion, slow down the iron, get catalase in to bleed off that uh, hydrogen peroxide, use hydrogen water to deal with the hydro with the uh, with the hydroxyl radicals. Uh, but for this, we just don't know yet. And uh, perhaps after we do a little research and find some things, we can come back and uh, fill everybody in. But unfortunately, at this point, all we've done is identified the problem step number one. And, you know, a brain trust together, so to speak, that uh, starts looking at, okay, we've we've got this DRD2, now what? What's next? And unfortunately, don't mean to be disappointed to those listening, but all we've done so far is just identify the problem. Uh, much more research has to be done to identify, you know, what are the cofactors? How do we stimulate that DRD2? so that the IL-2 and the IL-4 is inhibited? And how do we support that dopamine and norepinephrine conversion? Uh, don't know yet, but we're going to be working uh, pretty hard and fast on it to try to figure it out so we can support that uh, production of dopamine, the dopamine and norepinephrine conversion, uh, how to get the dopamine into the DRD2 so it can do uh, what it does. And, uh, and then also... Uh, how we can support uh, that 5-HTP to serotonin, which also is involved in immune. So when the people are depressed, they might have low serotonin, and there's a serotonin-immune relationship as well. Quite the uh, the complex uh, myriad of factors that go together. Back to the 3D chess game. Underwater. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, I want to bring up two points here. And the first one, in Chinese medicine, there's this concept called Shen, which loosely translated means spirit. And the short explanation is spirit is when your individuality, so exp your expressed individuality, the whole idea that our, the cookie cutter, the mold was broken when we were made. And then also, if you're looking at that glass of water, is it half filled and half empty? So if your shen is strong, it's half filled. If your shen is weak, and there are a whole category of herbs, Bob, that are shen supporting herbs and shen calming herbs. And mm. that might be an area to look where the Chinese kind of have a jump start. Now they're not talking about dopamine and cannabinoids specifically because they didn't have 
biochemistry 2,000 years ago, but they right. observed very closely how these compounds calm people down, and maybe that's the pathway that we can uh, look at. And if there are some studies there out of China looking at at some of these herbs, because they there is quite a bit of research out there on the on the fringes. And speaking of the fringes, I just want to acknowledge you for the work you're doing. One of my favorite stories is the story of the Wright brothers. And there was at the time an arms race, if you will, the between the establishment in Washington D.C. and and Langley, and they named an air force base after Langley, Samuel mm-hmm. Pierpont Langley, and he was getting hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is in this day like millions of dollars, to make an airplane. And it was these two brothers in the middle of nowhere in Ohio, with no training, who tinkered, started with bicycles and spent their own money and got on a train and brought all their stuff down to Kitty Hawk and summer after summer figured out how to fly. And in some ways, I think this is what you're doing. At so many times, our scientists, the smart people, they're very smart, but they're stuck in a box and it takes somebody who's way outside the box to move the needle forward. And I really feel this is what you're doing there. And to have you out there pushing so hard and putting so many research resources into this, you you really like the Wright brothers of genetic nutrition, and I just appreciate you so much. Well, thank you. That that means a lot uh, coming from you because I'm just a traditional naturopath uh, battling as fast as I can go. So. <laughs> <laughs> now let's give people an opportunity. Um, two categories. If they're a practitioner and interested in learning more about what you're teaching. How do they get in hold of you? Sure. Well, the uh, we're going to have some exciting opportunities. Uh, if if you go to uh, this website, methyl m e t h y l genetic g e n e t i c nutrition, and then uh, classes. That's a long word, but methyl genetic nutrition classes dot com. Uh, you'll see our 2017 schedule and. Uh, at the date of this recording, wasn't even up yet. So if you go there and it's not there, don't uh, worry. But we're going to be in uh, Philadelphia in March. Uh, then we're going to be in uh, in uh, San Diego later in the year, and then Chicago. So there's going to be three locations uh, in 2017. Uh, however, uh, you know, seminars are great. I mean, uh, you attended my my two-day uh, seminar in Boston. It was, by the way, it was great to have you there. It, uh, you brought such good energy to the class, and to see your nodding head and smiling face was inspirational as I taught that class. But a lot of people, you know, it's hard to travel. You know, you've got a wedding to go to a weekend, uh, conflicts. So I'm starting a, a certification course uh, that will be taught online, and we'll have that information as soon as it's available. Uh, first or second week of December, uh, we'll start the first couple modules that is designed for health professionals uh, only. So check the uh, that website, methylgeneticnutritionclasses.com, for the training for practitioners. And then secondarily, uh, if someone wants to look at the research, uh, the website Nutrigenetic, and that's N-U-T-R-I, genetic, G-E-N-E-T-I-C, research.org. Uh, there you'll see the poster from... Uh, from Helsinki, the paper, and a video that walks you through. I mean, listening to this uh, recording, I know people have a hard time because we're throwing the terms at them pretty darn fast. And if you don't understand biochemistry, you're overwhelmed. So I have a video there that actually shows the chart. I kind of go through it slowly. 
hopefully in uh, the next uh, week or two, uh, we will have the Phase 2 poster up and a, a video. Uh, that should be available uh, late November. Now, we'll actually be a video where you'll see this whole chart. Again, when I start rattling off the DDC and the DBH and the DRD, I mean, that's just, you know, too many terms. But if you watch the video, you'll see me slowly walk you through and uh, you can see visually how this may be uh, operating. So check the Nutrigenetic Research Institute, uh, research.org and we have the posters, the papers, and uh, the videos for those who have that uh, high glutamate and need to know uh, everything about it and are just fascinated by it. Uh, that video is for them. That's so exciting. And if a patient, somebody with Lyme disease, wants to get in touch with you or find somebody who does this sort of genetic analysis, what, sure. what's available sure. for them? Well, there's a website, gettoknowyourdna.com, gettoknowyourdna.com. And on there we have uh, lists of uh, practitioners who've, uh, who use the, uh, the software. Uh, now, not all of them have been... Uh, trained in Lyme. And, uh, and of course, you know, McKay, you're an excellent uh, resource for these folks as well. Uh, my schedule is getting kind of booked, but I, I still uh, take some new people on. Uh, my website is tolhealth.com, www.tol, T is in Tom, O is in Oscar, L is in Larry, stands for Tree of Life Health.com. And if you are a practitioner, uh, you know, a licensed healthcare practitioner or a, uh, you know, someone who's providing, uh, you know, work to folks. Uh, the software that figured this all out is called Methyl Genetic Nutrition Analysis, and that's at dnasupplementation.com. Now, this is only for people who have a health practice, for practitioners. If you're just a consumer and, you know, please don't apply for the site because you won't get it, but if you're a practitioner, uh, you can apply for a free trial, uh, try the software, see if it's right for you, or it analyzes the genetic information. So those are the resources we have. We're trying to train uh, uh, doctors and other healthcare practitioners as quickly as we can. Because if I can just say very fast, uh, one of the things that uh, many people are starting to learn about is they, they get their genetics, they do their 23andMe, uh, they go to some sites on the web that are free or minimal charge, and they learn they have MTHFR. And MTHFR is a very important enzyme. It makes methylfolate. But we have become hysterical over MTHFR. And we tend to think if we have MTHFR, we need to start taking large amounts of methylfolate. And that does work for a small amount of people. But for most folks, they, uh, they feel great for 10 to 12 days and then they either get massively inflamed or anxious because methylfolate stimulates phase one liver detox, which is great if phase two is working. Which is what we just talked about earlier, the, you know, the glutathione, the catalase. If not, you're going to get more inflamed. And also folate can, or uh, folate can turn into a glutamate. And if you've got issues there, it can make you more anxious. So we need to be very careful with folate. For practitioners, I've actually developed what I call the pyramid, where there's a bunch of things you have to take care of first before you throw in folate. So if anybody's listening to this and they find out they have MTHFR, uh, I would say use extreme, extreme caution and just going on the internet, getting some methyl folate and start taking large amounts. Strong potential, it could really backfire on you. 
Thanks for the warning, Bob, and thanks again for all the work you're doing and the wisdom and knowledge that you have and that you're committed to sharing to everybody. And also, folks, he's thrown a ton of URLs at us, web addresses and information. We'll put up as many links as I can put together on the show notes to have this information there. So if you just go to LimeNinjaRadio.com, click on Bob's picture, and this will be, I don't know exactly what number, uh, interview, I think 113, uh, right around there. You'll, you'll see his picture on the list of interviews, the podcasts that we have. Click on that and then you'll be taken to the show notes section where it's got all his bio information and then we'll have all these links. So whether you're a practitioner or a patient or just curious about more information here, we'll have all these links that he mentioned right there. So if you're driving your car, don't fret. You don't have to pull over and take notes. Just remember LimeNinjaRadio.com. And, Bob, thanks again. You're a warrior. Keep going out there. Okay. It's been a pleasure, like always. And I'm sure we'll be talking again when we have Phase 3. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bob Miller's interviews, the two of them that I've read now, I always feel like I have to go back and listen to them again and again to make sure that I that I understood everything. But my major takeaway from this one is that he really found that it was glutamate and the disruption of these glutamate pathways, patterns that were behind the neurological symptoms and the emotional symptoms really of Lyme disease. It's one of the big patterns that does show up again and again. And I know what you mean about having to listen. I, I went to one of Bob's seminars in Boston a couple weeks ago, and in preparation, I listened to a previously taped seminar over and over and over again, hoping that when I finally got there in person, I would have a clue as to what he was talking about. And really, once you begin to study, slow it down and listen again and again, it makes a lot of sense. And the glutamate thing is a huge problem. Glutamate is produced by several processes. And really, it's the breaking down of it or the lack of conversion over to GABA that's the big problem. And mm-hmm. when you have glutamate, so glutamate's a good thing, right? Like like many substances, the body, but too little is a problem and too much is a problem. So there's a sweet spot. And having a lot of glutamate makes you smart and makes you driven, makes you want to do well in school, makes you pay attention. It's all the kind of good stuff. But you start getting too much of that or lose the ability to convert it into GABA, which is a calming neurotransmitter. And that's a genetic variant that can stop that from happening. And then all of a sudden you're just wired. And if you're wired too long and you're sick, you're wired and tired. So that's that whole pattern where people are spent staying up till two, three in the morning studying Lyme disease or, or researching or being on Facebook or something like that and then are exhausted for a lot of the rest of the day. Uh, you know, yeah. or you're at night and you just can't quite bring yourself to fall asleep. You're just actually too tired to, to fall asleep. As crazy as that sounds, we've all seen little kids running around who have are overtired. They're so tired they can't, <laughs> they can't call themselves down. And it's that sort of pattern. And uh, he's done really Bob Miller, not, not the little kid running around account to go to sleep, but Bob Miller's done a great job beginning to identify which genes tend to show up uh, with Lyme disease. And then also developing supplements that address the, this glutamate problem. He has uh, two glutamate scavenging formulas that uh, seem to do a really good job with that.
Anyway, if you want to check out our previous episode interview with him, I highly recommend it. He's done, Bob has done two studies, uh, phase one and phase two. And in this interview that you just listened to, that was phase two. He has also talks about phase one in episode number 98. I'm sure there'll be a phase three and a phase four as he continues to get this information. Also, you can go to his website if you want to contribute your 23andMe data. It can be done anonymously, so there's no problem there. Uh, and we'll have a link to that on our show notes. Sorry, I don't have that off the, right off the top of my head, but if you go to the show notes section, uh, com, episode number 114 with Bob Miller, we'll have a link that where you can participate in upcoming uh, Lyme studies. And lastly, I do want to say thanks for those of you who have joined the Keto Challenge. It's inspiring to see how many people have taken us up on this. really think ketogenic diet and getting your ketones up with ketone supplements is going to be an important part of a lot of people's healing. And we just want to get some preliminary data out there. So join the Keto Challenge. Help yourself feel better, get some energy, more mental clarity. That's in general what ketones do. Of course, we can't guarantee that's going to work for everybody, but man, it sure does help a lot of people. And we also get a little bit of a bonus, a little bit of commission for each of these packages that we sell. So we appreciate the contribution to Lime Ninja Radio to help us keep on the air and bringing these great interviews like Bob Miller. Right, Aurora? That is right. And to enter <laughs> Keto Challenge... Speaking of yeah. announcing and radio, to enter Keto Challenge, just go over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and you'll see the splash screen. You click on the Learn More button and that will take you to the Keto Challenge page. Yes, go ahead and check it out. If you're a little bit curious, just check out what we have to say there. We give you some more details about that challenge and ketones in general. All right, and last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast could not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of today. Did you know when a ninja dies, they don't carve R.I.P. on the tombstone, they carve B.R.B.? Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and/or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.